is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we like sending our team out on the road to capture your stories, the American people's stories. Our young faith has been going to the villages, the largest retirement community in the country. Jesse's frequently exploring the musical havens that bring so much of the great music that we all love to our airwaves and to our iPods and iPads. And Alex, well, you never know where he's going. Here's his report that he brings us today amidst downpouring rain and a howling wind that you'll hear in the background. It's May 4th, 2017, and it is 4.45 in the morning. I'm in St. Louis, and I was here for other business, and I read an article about this clinic that opens up at 5.15 in the morning and how people line up at 5 a.m. in order to get into this clinic. What are they lining up for? They're lining up for medicine and therapy that helps them overcome their opioid addiction, painkillers, heroin. And I was just so moved by this story, the fact that there's 30 people out here at this time of morning in order to turn their life around. And why this clinic opens up at this time is so that all these people can go to work. Not all of them are working, but there's most of them are working. I don't know if anyone will want to talk to me. I necessarily wouldn't want to talk about my own struggles, but by sharing each other's stories, we can hopefully help one another. Here's my first interview with a gentleman who asked not to be identified. He looks about 30 to 35 years old. So it's, it's almost 5 a.m. right now, and you're, you're out here, and it's, it's an awful day in terms of the rain, too. Yeah. How often are you here? Oh, we can't every day, unless, unless somebody moves up, or, um, you know, a lot of people have, they'll get weekly takes or yeah. weekend takes, and then they'll be able not have to come every week, like people with jobs, like me. And by takes, he means getting a dosage of the withdrawal drug methadone. And it may seem weird to treat an addiction to one drug by giving someone another drug, but for a ton of people like this gentleman, it, it really works for them. And what methadone essentially does is it stimulates opioid receptors in the brain and thereby limits the urge to use opioids like heroin. So did you start getting daily takes and now they've allowed you to do a weekly here? Yeah, once, well, how it works is you get daily and then uh, if all your drops are yeah. clean for so many months and you're going to your groups and stuff. They have their uh, groups inside. They have them, uh, I'm sure it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When you're coming here, it's, you know, you might still use the first week or two when yeah. you're coming, you know, until you get leveled yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And then everything, everything's great after that, you know I mean? As long as you do it right. There's ways you can abuse it and there's ways you can do it right. And how many people here would you say is it heroin or versus, you know, painkillers? Oh, it's about 50-50 there. Okay. People come up here like that's how I started. You know, one day I needed painkillers to get really? painkillers at the hospital for a, for a, a certain incident I had regarding my health. Yeah. And that's how I got started. Most people, I would say, I would say 80% of people get started, just in my opinion, yeah. using, um, you know, uh, pain meds. And uh, so, and then they end up here, they, you know, they don't have them. They don't have the knowledge, and they like like me. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't realize if I 
abuse them in any way, I would start getting ungodly sick, you know what I mean? And then end up um, having a friend come up to me and basically say, hey, try this. And automatically makes you feel better and then you're hooked. Just like that. Just like that, you're hooked. And the one thing that really hurts is hurts to see is you see now you're starting to see younger and younger people come up here. I mean, there's people that have to have their parents. Oh, they going the yeah, that's all right. They have to have their parents. Um, I just want to finish real quick because I don't want to be rude, but um, they have their parents and stuff come up here with them. Anybody underage or anything, they have to have their parents' approval. So and that's I mean, tough. what parent? Yeah, but yeah. it's it's a lot better than you know your kids out on the street. Yeah. You know, are you concerned about withdrawing from? I'm re- I'm withdrawing now. I, I'll be off of it by the end of the year. Oh wow! I'm, am I concerned about it? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm for no. I I don't think I'll ever use it again. No. Okay. I don't think I'll ever whack that line. I never would have if I would have never taken methadone to stopping. You're not you're not. No, about. I'm I'm what I'm going to do. It's a program. I'm not going to go into it. It's a little. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a certain program yeah. that they provide. Yep. Um, not going to go into that, but they provide it, and um, it makes it easier for you. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do, and. Um, is this the only the place like this that opens so no. early in the morning? No. The, no there's a couple there. There's um, another one uh, right off of Dunn Road. Actually, my brother goes to it. Okay. Yeah. My brother goes to that one. And, um, yeah, everything started going bad for our family pretty much in 06 when a tragedy happened in the family. And uh, my mom's also been up here because, okay. you know, that's that's the kind of grip it takes on you when, you're, yeah. when you have it around people that have an addict um what would you call it? Um, a problem with yeah. um, being an addict. Yeah. How's having, your mom doing now? Oh, she's off of it. She's been, you know, when I get sick, I'm a big baby. And most men are. And, and it's the women that are more mentally tough. I don't know if it's from going through birth or what, but it, it seems that way. But I see you're wearing a cross. Uh, does your faith help you get through this at all? Oh, yeah. 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 I Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you got to have faith. You yeah. don't. I mean, where else are you going to turn? I, I've never been homeless or anything. Yeah. Thank God. You know, yeah, I it was had, a real low point in a certain. Oh point. yeah, yeah. Whenever, it, when, it, whenever it came to my son, that's when it got bad. When okay. I wasn't seeing my son, and uh, I'm still. Did his mom prevent of, you from seeing him? Did she didn't prevent me? It yeah. was because all I was focused on was where I would get my next. Okay. You know, basically my next fix. You know, but so at least you had the foresight though not to be around him. And, Right, I, I wouldn't have it around him. I wouldn't have it. So that missing him, you know, that's what led me here. Missing yeah. him, um, doing I wanted to do right by him because I grew up with a dad that I couldn't look up to. He seems like he's an alcoholic. Couldn't look up to him. Well, after these short messages, more of Alex's report from the opioid treatment clinic that opens up at five fifteen, so that addicted folks can get help and make it to work. And what inspiring people! What a what a what a courageous guy to just share that with a with a random stranger actually with a microphone to be that committed to healing too and for the right reasons for his family for his boy more with Alex his story these folks story at this opioid clinic here on our American stories
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's reporting from an opioid treatment clinic in St. Louis. When we left off, the anonymous gentleman Alex was speaking with was telling him about the lowest point of his addiction, missing his son, being separated from his son. So that's what led me here was mostly him and oh, myself. Beautiful to be a good example for your yeah, son. Now, I, I, had, I just want him to be able to look up to me. That's why I went to school for something to do with weaponology. Yeah. I'm not going to go into no, it. No, but, no. And I work at another a really good place. And uh, as far as like... Um, that's a cool thing to go to school for, too. Yeah, and I'm gonna, as soon as I get out of here, I can. Uh, that's why I'm working on getting out of here. I should... Wind's crazy, but anyways, I'm going to school for the uh, for um, as soon as I get out of here, I'm gonna be going to not to school, I'm sorry, to the National Guard. I but I gotta be out oh, of here great. first, yeah, yeah. So I'm be going to the National Guard, and that helps. And the other, we have to the, disclose that you're using to the guard. Um, I don't know how it works. Yeah. I talked to a recruiter, but I don't know how exactly how it works with there with that. All I know is there's certain guidelines that yeah. they have you have to make. I'll be out of here before the year's over, so that's. It's, I've been coming. I've been coming here for three and a half years. I was only using for three years. Yeah. I've been coming here for three and a half now. So, but a lot of these people, man, they've been they've been here the, a long time. You know, I'm not gonna name any names, and they're and they're really good people. They really are. They just got trapped up. Most of the guys up there, I mean, you can tell they got to go to work. You know, I'm I'm off today, but most of the guys up there, they're working. Uh, that's why we let. And anybody who is working, like as a as a as a line, we'll let them go in front of us. It's it almost like a little community then. It's like you guys, well, like well, with, saying, the, like with the people that's been here for a while, you, you know, if you've know been coming here, yeah, yeah, encourage definitely. Them in the right way, I've yeah. got one of my best friends that I just when I met, you know, three years ago, come here that I could he could ask anything from me, and I can ask anything from him. Yeah, I mean, it's just they they're all really good people. Yeah, I mean, people see us standing in this line, they think, oh, a bunch of junkies. They have no, no idea. Until you go through yeah. it, you don't know it. Until you go through it, until you walk into that, it's like a web. You're walking into that spider web, and you get trapped. And well, it can get anyone. It comes, yeah. it's, it's got oh, rich yeah. people, middle class oh, yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you afford to use when you didn't have a job? Like, where'd you get the money? Oh man, when when you're when you're down and out, it's, uh, when you're down and out like that, when when uh, that's how that's how I, that's why I say when if you haven't been through it, you have no idea what it's like because you will. You will do things you never thought you would do. You would, you, you'll, you'll, you'll just, you'll just hustle, man. You hustle, hustle, hustle. Like here, we come here and we struggle, you know, because with it being, you know, what it is. I mean, it's not much though compared to what we yeah, were. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not much at all. But compared to what we were doing, it was hard to hear with the wind. But what he was saying is that he spent two hundred dollars a day on heroin. And he had to get the money by stealing and doing other things that he didn't really want to get into. Thank God I've never had any charges. I don't have a background. Don't have any felonies. Never did time. So that's all good. That's why I'm able to do things I'm doing. That's why. And, you know, and, you know there's some guys up here do, but I don't judge them. You know, they just fell into a bad cycle of life. You know, yeah. some of them, like I, I come from a broken home, but I won't let that keep me down. And a lot of that has to do with my faith. A lot of that has to do with my son. Yeah. Me, you know, wanting to be a better person. Just in general yeah. you know all that but um besides that though with the ending note because i'm gotta get ready to go in here in a minute um if this place weren't here i don't know where i'd be right now so it is a, it's a really good place you, you know i had no if i if i would have known about this place a year in i would have been here i wouldn't have been on that crap for three years if i'd known about this place no way 
no way I hit my bottom into the year and a half stage. I hit my bottom when I was not seeing my son on a basis. That's the, like I said before, that's that's the part that crushed me the most. I mean, standing here saying it, it chokes me up. You know, that's the part that crushed me the most because it's my only child. Well, you hear it in his voice. And by the way, you're hearing all that wind again and that rain because Alex was out out in line with a whole group of people. Uh, well, he got out there at 4 in the morning. The, the doors opened at 5.15. And Alex was there because he'd read a story in the local paper, in the St. Louis paper, about this opioid clinic where people were lining up early so they could then go to work. And we track every story here on Our American Stories. And one of the big ones is, Opioid addiction in this country, and we're looking to find well to find out what the problem is, and then ultimately we're going to try and track some solutions and park ourselves in a couple of towns that are really struggling and working with this. So follow us on this, but uh, we know somebody, all of us, who's suffering from this. It's not far from all of our families. Alex then continued his reporting before the doors of the clinic opened and everyone ushered in. And I talked to one more person when I was here. He also asked not to be identified. Um, and we could keep talking as long as the doors to the clinic didn't open yet. Of course, I didn't want to get in his way for why he's really here. You don't have to say your job, but what kind of work do you do? I work in a uh, like a factory that makes landscaping blocks. Okay. <laughs> landscaping blocks. Like, what does that mean specifically? Um, it, you ever drive by a building and see a big retaining wall yeah. with blocks? Yeah. That's what we make. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been coming here? Um, a couple years. Okay. And um, it's really changed your life taking methadone, or? Yeah, I don't. I don't use anymore. Okay. I don't use street drugs anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How did it start out? Were you on painkillers, or did you go? Straight yeah, that's straight? how. That's how it started out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that just. You know, it was, uh, I just couldn't get off of them. You know, it just, you just feel sick after you, you know, take them for a legitimate reason for a while. And after six months of that, then you try to wean yourself off of them and you just feel miserable. How long were you using? Um, a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. And any real low points? Oh, sure, sure. I could... I don't know how much time you have. But no, I got time. Yeah, until, until you got time. Like the no, gentleman I was no, just talking I mean, to, not seeing his son. You know, he was just telling me. And, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it gets terrible. You know, because you you can't. The doctors eventually are just going to say I, I can't write you prescriptions anymore. So you you turn to the street, and, and uh, you know you just have to lower yourself and do some some shady stuff to to get what you need. How much were you spending around a, a day on it at your at your peak? Oh, uh, before I came here, um, you know, sometimes a hundred or two hundred bucks, and not every day. I mean, it couldn't. I couldn't have spent that much every day, but there were plenty of days where I'd use a hundred or two hundred dollars worth. Were you working at that or time? Or more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's another low point. You know, you end up burning two jobs because you. Yeah. You know falling asleep at your desk or whatever <laughs> so um and how how cheap is this compared to to that it's it's, it's a lot cheaper than that yeah it's around yeah. 15 or 17 dollars 17 dollars a day, a day yeah. yeah you know you can't 17 dollars buying something on the street is not going to get you what you need yeah. to, to just even feel normal that that's what it got to it wasn't 
I wasn't trying to get high. I was just trying to feel normal enough yeah. to function, you know, and not feel sick. Like, like I had the damn flu. So that's interesting. That's I, think, I think most to. people, when they you know read about it in the papers, they you know as this last guy was saying, like these junkies in a line, like they they probably think it's people trying to get high, and they don't they don't know that people are just trying to feel normal. As you said, yeah, yeah. This I taking methadone. I don't I don't have any. I don't feel hot, you know, yeah. buzzed or anything. That if you took it without having yeah. a tolerance, you you'd probably fall around on the ground, and, you know either pass out or you'd be wasted but I, I don't feel I just feel normal do you have a family yeah yeah I'm, I'm married but I'm separated and okay. I have kids and that my kids finally are aware of the situation yeah. so that sucks but but uh, are they able to overcome I'm, that now not knowing that you're in a good place um it's it's difficult yeah you know it's not it's not ideal well, there's time yeah there's it could, there's still time. Yeah, I, I still talk to him every day. So well, every day is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm busy, but every day they're still talking to you. Right, and I'm working every day now, so it's you know that the low point was I wasn't working, trying to come here and trying to make miracles happen. So um, things are going pretty good now, right? Yeah. So good. I, I'm I'm an advocate of it. You know, I hope these places stay around. Yeah. There's so many too many people dying out there. My understanding is there's not too many places and there's, there's no. not too many doctors who are able to subscribe either. Right, and and a lot of them that do are do irres- do so irresponsibly. Yeah. So, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a good day. You too. And there you have it, Alex's report from an opioid clinic and a treatment center in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where he had been on other business. Read a peep, an article in the paper. Uh, phoned in and said, hey, I need to stay an extra day. I need to do this. I think it would be good material. I said, let's do it. And there you have it. And we're going to continue to track this story. Uh, An estimated 40,000 people die from opioid overdoses each and every year. And that makes it an official crisis in this country. I think enough people are talking about it now. That's good. We want to hear real-life stories from real-life people, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. Great job on this, Alex, as always. our American stories and it's commencement time and we love bringing you the best commencement speeches of old and new and today we're bringing you Will Ferrell's University of Southern California commencement speech he gave this in 2017 and it went exactly how you'd imagine Will Ferrell well how he'd give a commencement speech here's how he started things off it is uh, incredibly surreal one might even say unbelievable that I get to deliver this address to you. As a freshman in the fall of 1986, if you were to come up to me and say that in the year 2017, you, Will Farrell, will be delivering the commencement address for USC, I would have hugged you <laughs> with tears in my eyes. I then, I then would have asked this person from the future, does that mean I graduated? 
Yes, you did, says the person from the future. What else can you tell me about the future? Future person turns to me and says, I can tell you that you will become one of the most famous alumni of this university. Mentioned in the same breath as John Wayne, Neil Armstrong, and Rob Kardashian. But it turns out I did graduate in 1990 with a degree in sports information. <laughs> yes, you heard me, sports information. A program so difficult, so arduous, that they discontinued the major eight years after I left. Those of us with sports information degrees are an elite group. We are, we are like the Navy SEALs of USC graduates. There are very few of us and there was a high dropout rate. So, I graduate and I immediately get a job right out of college working for ESPN, right? Wrong. No, I move right back home. Back home to the mean streets of Irvine, California. <laughs> Yes, Irvine always gets that response. <laughs> Pretty great success story, right? So he put all that hard work into graduating only to move back in with his mom without any idea of what to do with the rest of his life. Will Farrell then tells us how he met a certain professor who gave him an opportunity to be funny. Yeah, I moved back home for a solid two years, I might add. And I was lucky, actually. Lucky that I had a very supportive and understanding mother who's sitting out there in the crowd who let me move back home. And she recognized that while I had an interest in pursuing sports casting, my gut was telling me that I really wanted to pursue something else. And that something else was comedy. For you see, the seeds for this journey were planted right here on this campus. This campus was a theater or testing lab, if you will. I was always trying to make my friends laugh whenever I could find a moment. I had a, a work-study job at the Humanities Audio-Visual Department that would allow me to take off from time to time. By allow me, I mean I would just leave and they didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> so I would literally leave my job if I knew friends were attending class close by and crash a lecture while in character. My good buddy, Emil, who's also here today, Emil, in the house. Emil told me one day that I should crash his thematic options literature class one day. So I cobbled together a janitor's outfit, complete with work gloves, safety goggles, a dangling lit cigarette, and a bucket full of cleaning supplies. And then I proceeded to walk into the class, interrupting the lecture, informing the professor that I'd just been sent from physical plant to clean up a student's vomit. <laughs> True story. What Emil neglected to tell me was that the professor of his class was Ronald Gottesman, a professor who co-edited the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Needless to say, a big-time guy. A month after visiting my, my friend's class as the janitor, I... I was walking through the campus when someone grabbed me by the shoulder and it was Ron Gottesman. 
I thought for sure he was going to tell me to never do that again. Instead, what he told me was that he loved my barging in on his class and that he thought it was one of the funniest things he'd ever seen and would I please do it again? So, on invitation from Professor Gottesman, I would barge in on his lecture class from time to time as the guy from Physical Plant, coming by to check on things, and the professor would joyfully play along. One time I got my hands on a power drill, and I just stood outside the classroom door operating the drill. for a good minute. Unbeknownst to me, Professor Gottesman was wondering aloud to his class, I wonder if we're about to get a visit from our physical plant guy. <laughs> I then walked in, as if on cue, and the whole class erupted in laughter. After leaving, Professor Gottesman then weaved the surprise visit into his lecture on Walt Whitman and the Leaves of Grass. Moments like these encouraged me to think that Maybe I was funny to whole groups of people who didn't know me. And this wonderful professor had no idea how his encouragement of me to come and interrupt his class, no less, was enough to give myself permission to be silly and weird. Will Ferrell goes on to talk about paying his dues in show business, in stand-up comedy, and improvisation. My senior year, I would discover a comedy and improv troupe called The Groundlings, located on Melrose Avenue. This was the theater company that in school that gave the starts to Lorraine Newman, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Pee Wee Herman, Conan O'Brien, Lisa Kudrow, to name a few. Later it would become my home, where I would meet the likes of Chris Kattan, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Parnell, Maya Rudolph, Will Forte, and Kristen Wiig. I went to one of their shows during the spring semester of my senior year and in fact got pulled up on stage during an audience participation sketch. I was so afraid and awestruck at what the actors were doing that I didn't utter a word. And even in this moment of abject fear and total failure, I found it to be thrilling to be on that stage. I then knew I wanted to be a comedic actor. So starting in the fall of 1991, for the next three and a half years, I was taking classes and performing in various shows at the Groundlings and around Los Angeles. I was even trying my hand at, at stand-up comedy. Not great stand-up, mind you, but enough material to get myself up in front of strangers. I would work the phones to invite all my SC friends to places like Nino's Italian Restaurant in Long Beach, the San Juan Depot in San Juan Capistrano, and the Cannery in Newport Beach. And those members of my Trojan family would always show up. My stand-up act was based mostly on material derived from watching old episodes of Star Trek. My opening joke was to sing the opening theme to Star Trek. come back more from Will Farrell. What a commencement speech and what advice, what wisdom. 
This is Our American Stories. It's commencement month. You're celebrating it in your families, and we're bringing you the best and some of the worst commencement speeches of all time, as we do every May and June here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Will Farrell's commencement speech to the graduating class from the University of Southern California. What a treat for the students. Uh, this wasn't my graduation speaker, my goodness. I don't even remember. No, actually, it was the governor of New Jersey at the time, whom I can't remember, and it was dull as paint. There should be a rule. No politician should be allowed to speak on graduation day. That should just be a rule. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Not allowed. By the way, some of the speeches you'll hear and have heard, Denzel Washington, Robert De Niro, his was terrific at NYU, Admiral McRaven, Steve Jobs, his Stanford commencement speech was remarkable, the Farrelly brothers, as funny as it gets, and Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice at Hillsdale College. My goodness, aside of him, nobody knows. A remarkable story, a great speech. Now let's return to Will Farrell. At USC, Will told us about a professor that would allow him to be outrageous and interrupt class, being the catalyst into his life of comedy. Farrell had been paying his dues in comedy by doing stand-up and improv, and now he continues his story. I wasn't extremely confident that I would succeed during this time period. And after moving back to L.A., there were many a night where, in my L.A. apartment, I would sit down to a meal of spaghetti topped with mustard with only $20 in my checking account, and I would think to myself, oh well, I can always be a substitute school teacher. (laughs) And yes, I was afraid. You're never not afraid. I'm still afraid. I was afraid to write this speech. And now I'm I'm just realizing how many people are watching me right now, and it's scary. (laughs) Can you please look away while I deliver the rest of the speech? But my fear of failure never approached in magnitude my fear of what if. What if I never tried at all? By the spring of 1995, producers from Saturday Night Live had come to see the current show at the Groundlings. After two harrowing auditions and two meetings with executive producer Lauren Michaels, which all took place over the course of six weeks, I got the word. I was hired to the cast of Saturday Night Live for the 95-96 season. I couldn't believe it, and and even though I went on to enjoy seven seasons on the show, it was a rocky beginning for me. After my first show, one review referred to me as the most annoying newcomer of the new cast. (laughs) Someone showed this to me, and I, I promptly put it up on the wall in my office, reminding myself that to some people, I will be annoying. Some people will not think I'm funny, and that that's okay. 
One woman wrote to me and said she hated my portrayal of George W. Bush. It was mean-spirited, not funny, and besides, you have a fat face. <laughs> I wrote her back. And I said, I appreciate your letter, and she was entitled to her opinion. But that my job as a comedian, especially on a show like Saturday Night Live, was to hold up a mirror to our political leaders and engage from time to time in satirical reflection. As for my fat face, you are 100% right. I'm trying to work on that. Please don't hesitate to write me again if you feel like I've lost some weight in my face. The venerable television critic for the Washington Post, Tom Shales, came up to me during my last season of the show. He told me congratulations on my time at the show, and then he apologized for things he had written about me in some of his early reviews of my work. I paused for a second before I spoke, and then I said, How dare you, you son of a bitch! I could tell this startled him. And then I told him I was kidding, and that I'd never read any of his reviews. It was true, I hadn't read his reviews. In fact, I didn't read any reviews because once again, I was too busy throwing darts at the dartboard, all the while facing my fears. When he left after a successful run on Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell had yet to reach his full potential. He continues with his story and talks about, he defi- and talks about how he defines success. Even as I left SNL, None of the studios were willing to take a chance on me as a comedy star. It took us three years of shopping Anchorman around before anyone would make it. When I left SNL, all I really had was a a movie called Old School that wouldn't be released for another year, and a subpar script that needed a huge rewrite about a man raised by elves at the North Pole. Even now, I still lose out on parts that I want so desperately. My most painful example was losing the role of Queen Elizabeth in the film The Queen. (laughs) Apparently, it came down to two actors, myself and Helen Mirren. The rest is history. Dame Helen Mirren, you stole my Oscar! Now, one may look at me as having great success, which I have in the strictest sense of the word. And don't get me wrong, I love what I do, and I feel so fortunate to get to entertain people. But to me, my definition of success is my 16 and a half year marriage to my beautiful and talented wife, Vivica. Success are my three amazing sons, Magnus, 13, Matthias, 10, and Axel, age 7. Right there. Stand up, guys. Take a bow. There you go. (laughs) Success to me is my involvement in the charity Cancer for College, which gives college scholarships to cancer survivors started by my great friend and SC alum, Craig Pollard, a two-time cancer survivor himself, who thought of the charity while we were fraternity brothers at the Delt House up on West Adams. 
Craig was also one of the members of my Trojan family, sitting front and center at my bad stand-up comedy shows, cheering me on. No matter how cliché it may sound, you will never truly be successful until you learn to give beyond yourself. Empathy and kindness are the true signs of emotional intelligence. And that's what Viv and I try to teach our boys. Hey, Matthias, get your hands off Axel right now. Stop it. I can see you, okay? In closing, Will Farrell gives his parting advice to the graduating class of the University of Southern California before he serenades us with his a cappella version of I Will Always Love You. To those of you graduates sitting out there who have a pretty good idea of what you'd like to do with your life, congratulations. For many of you who maybe don't have it all figured out, it's okay. That's the same chair that I sat in. Enjoy the process of your search without succumbing to the pressure of the result. Trust your gut. Keep throwing darts at the dartboard. Don't listen to the critics, and you will figure it out. Class of 2017, I just want you to know you will never be alone on whatever path you may choose. If you do have a moment where you feel a little down, just think of the support you have from this great Trojan family. And imagine me. Literally picture my face singing this song gently into your ear. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go. But I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And I will always love you. of 2017 and I will always love you thank you fight on There's not much to say after that. Will Farrell dazzling the crowd at the University of Southern California. And it's commencement time. We bring you the best, the worst. Robert De Niro, Denzel Washington, Steve Jobs, 
Much more to come through the weeks and the month. This is Our American Stories, Will Farrell's story on Commencement Day at his alma mater. Habib with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. In this feature, you're about to meet someone you've probably heard of, but who you likely don't truly know. Shakespeare asked, what's in a name? When the name is Astor, the answer's easy. For more than 200 years, the Astor name has been synonymous with power, prestige, grandeur, luxury, elegance, and riches that royalty would envy. Astoria, Queens in New York and Astoria, Oregon are both named after him. Even the renowned hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York bears his name. This wealth earned John Jacob Astor many admirers, but also many bitter opponents. Astor united breathtaking willpower with global vision, all in a time when instant communication, or even telegraphs and railroads, were a distant dream, writes Phil Anschutz. Astor is a name unto itself, but then who really knows the man behind the name? a German immigrant who became America's first multi-millionaire. Johann Jakob Astor's life began in the tiny town of Waldorf, Germany in 1763. Johann and his eight siblings rarely had enough to eat. His mother died when he was three, and his dad was an abusive drunk. Johann! At 15, Johann was finally able to escape this ordeal. He followed his oldest brother, George, who became a successful instrument maker in London. Johann Jakob Astor thus commenced an apprenticeship under his brother's tutelage. He quickly learned the secrets of making musical instruments and rapidly learned English as well. He became truly masterful in negotiating with British upper-class customers. 1783, the American War for Independence is over. Johann Jakob Astor decided to expand the musical instrument business across the Atlantic. At 20, he boards the North Carolina and sets sail for America to test the promise that through hard work, anyone can succeed. By this time, he's going by the name John Jacob Astor and speaks fluent English. After a 16-week arduous passage, 
Aster reaches the coast just outside of Baltimore. Shortly before reaching its destination, the ship runs aground on the ice. A disaster as the ship's provisions have been exhausted and a famine threatens all on board. But John Jacob does not want to wait for the thaw like the other passengers. The coast is in sight. He's the first and only one to climb from the ship and walk across the ice to Baltimore. For weeks, a penniless Astor walked along the coastline until he finally reached his new home. Here's Edwin Burroughs, historian at Brooklyn College. When the Astors arrived in New York, uh, the Revolutionary War had just finished, maybe three, four years earlier. Um, what they came to was a, 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 a village, really, uh, much smaller than modern Manhattan. Most of it is confined to the area below present-day Chambers Street. So it's a little tiny area, maybe a square mile at the southern tip of Manhattan. Had a population of maybe 30,000 people. There was also a, a, a small but growing number of poor landless whites and slaves in the town. New York was still a slave society. It was a place where many people doubted that New York had much of a future. So it was a time of great uncertainty, but I think also a time of great opportunity for people like the Astors who were willing to try their hand at, at anything that would make a dollar. Astor was a skilled salesman and clever strategist. As soon as his brother's instruments arrived from London, he took out advertisements in the newspaper and rented sales space. However, young Astor's career will be boosted by an unexpected and fortunate twist of fate. One morning, the merchant meets his landlady's daughter, a shy, no-nonsense girl named Sarah Todd. Sarah Todd was descended from a well-established Scottish family with excellent contacts to shipping companies and merchants, as well as business and social networks, which provided the requisite startup capital for his later businesses. Thanks to a $300 dowry, the young husband can open up his business after a short time. Luxury goods such as furs and fine musical instruments lure paying customers into his shop. While Sarah Astor worked in the shop, her enterprising husband was on the prowl in the backwoods of the United States. A mountain man of sorts. He discovered a new and extremely lucrative line of business. The fur trade. It was a time when the brown gold beaver pelt traded in the wilderness for a pittance, but would fetch a pretty penny in the outside world. For months at a time, Astor would hike through the forests to the Canadian border at Montreal in order to acquire furs that he could then later sell to his New York clientele. However, at that time, Montreal belonged to the British Crown, and trading between the Empire and foreign countries was strictly regulated. Nevertheless, in order to import furs from Montreal to New York, Astor used his connections. His merchants would first send the goods to his brother George in London, before shipping the now-declared goods back to New York. Astor is one of the few that ventured this, and was able to crowd his competitors out of the market. And when we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor. This day in history, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College, this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we return to the life of John Jacob Astor. I'm in New York City, standing at the corner of what is today Broadway and Astor Place. It was here where Astor built himself a pretentious mansion after 10 years of shrewd decision-making and hard work. By this time, Astor had four children, and Sarah Todd's dowry paid for itself 100 times over. Astor had become vain. He had a portrait of himself commissioned. Here's Lucy Cavaller, author of The Astors. Stewart made him look exactly the way he looked, and he was not a handsome man. He had a big nose and small eyes, and he got fat rather early. The painting wasn't flattering enough, so Astor refused to pay until the artist, the great Gilbert Stewart, who is best known for the unfinished portrait of George Washington, the one that appears on our $1 bill, painted a new one. I very much liked your portrait of George Washington, Mr. Stewart. I want my portrait to be modern, but with a strong effect on the viewer. A portrait of a successful entrepreneur, a patriot, and a man of exquisite tastes. Yes, sir. Stewart complied and created a portrait to make John Jacob look like a refined gentleman with a much slimmer appearance. When the new century rolled around in 1800, Astor's fortune was estimated at a quarter of a million dollars, an incredible sum at a time when a family could live handsomely on about $800 a year. But Astor wasn't satisfied. He wanted to become a global player. He invested in ships that took furs around the world. China was a major market, and when the ships returned to America, they were filled with exotic spices, weapons and ammunition, silks, teas, and smuggled opium. Astor literally made money coming and going. But if he was proud of his success, he kept it to himself. Here's Astor's descendant, Jackie Astor Drexel. He was definitely a very secretive man. He liked to get things done and quietly and not have anyone realize what was going on. And he was thrilled by the idea that he'd made a million dollars before anyone knew that he could possibly have come close to that mark. In 1810, Astor dreamed of founding his own city. Up until now, the United States is comprised of only a few states along the eastern seaboard. But President Thomas Jefferson advocates the conquest of the west coast. Astor dispatched one of his ships, the Tonquin, to the west coast. He expected to earn enormous profit predicated on establishing trading posts between New York and what was then called Fort Astoria. Today, the small town of Astoria, Oregon, has 10,000 residents and is probably best known as the shooting location for Steven Spielberg's 1985 cult classic adventure comedy, The Goonies. Sorry, Dad. 
We had our hands on the future. We blew it to save our own lives. Sorry. It's all right. You and Brand are home safe with your mom and me. That makes us the richest people in Astoria. Walsh, you're looking at the richest people in Astoria. Before the global demand for furs collapsed, the canny businessman sold off his American fur company and cultivated new plans, real estate. His philosophy was simple, buy in acres, sell in lots. He understood how New York was growing and how to take advantage of that growth because if you could buy real estate further uptown in a faraway place from downtown like, say, Greenwich Village, which New Yorkers now think of as being sort of in the middle of New York, but in those days was a, a little farm village on the outskirts of the city. If you could buy land in Greenwich Village and just wait a few years, then suddenly the city was going to arrive and your investment would be, you know, worth many times what you had originally paid for. A modern city must be like Karlsruhe or Mannheim. Mannheim is a contemporary city. Astor needed to convince the mayor, DeWitt Clinton, that New York must become a modern city. It's important for the real estate owner that no bad or good locations be created, but rather as many equal value locations as possible. 35th Street to 42nd Street. There. Now these would be the streets. 35th Street, 36th Street, 37th Street. It is the real estate developer John Jacob Astor who bestowed upon New York its geometrical layout and sequential avenues and streets. One of his first acquisitions was a 75-acre lot purchased in 1803 from a debt-ridden whiskey distiller. Today, here in the middle of Times Square, sits that very parcel of land Astor bought over 185 years ago. Gentlemen, I present to you each with a pistol. Examine them closely. I will then count to 10. That same year, he also bought considerable land from the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. Three, four. The very next year, Burr would kill fellow founding father. Alexander Hamilton in a famous duel. Ten, ready. John Jacobs' real estate dealings poured even more wealth into his coffers. Astonished by his colossal success, he once said, could I begin my life again, I would buy every foot on the island of Manhattan. At the beginning of Astor's real estate endeavor, property appreciation was calculated at about one-third. It will be more than a hundredfold in the end. Astor was a charmed man living a charmed life, but one cloud darkened his horizon. Of John Jacob's six living children, one was mentally disturbed. It was his firstborn son, the one who should have been Astor's primary heir, John Jacob II. Astor hired a doctor to stay with his son all the time. He also built a house with a high wall around it to keep his disabled son confined. During the 1830s, Astor repeatedly travels to Europe. 
Only Valdorf, his place of birth, does he consciously avoid. Then the saddest of news awaited him upon returning home from one of his continental tours. Mr. Asher, welcome back to America. I have some bad news for you. Uh, first off, uh, your wife, she has died. And one week ago, your, your brother is dead too. And I also must tell you that your daughter, she has passed away as well. I'm so sorry. A witness reported that he'd never seen Astor so dejected as on this day. At first, Astor rambled around in his comfortable home, but it held too many memories. Yet Astor's ability to absorb setbacks and transform them into long-term gains was a legendary component of his success, writes Phil Anschutz. This resilience allowed him to rebound for a second act. And as always, we hear this theme again and again in our This Days in History segments, particularly the businessmen, resilience, and second, third, and sometimes even fourth acts. So many of the people we feature here not making it, really making it, until their 40s. In Ray Kroc's case, the 50s, and Bernie Marcus as well, the founder of Home Depot. Kroc, of course, the founder, truly, of McDonald's. When we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale College, Hillsdale will come to you. They're terrific online courses. There's one on C.S. Lewis you can't miss. There's another on the Constitution called Constitution 101. It's a class that, well, even if you'd gone to a good law school, as I did, Uh, It's better. It's just better. I didn't learn any of the things I learned in law school that I did sitting down in Dr. Larry Oren's class in Hillsdale, where I'm lucky enough to teach two weeks out of every year. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great work. And now we return to our This Day in History. And on This Day in History, John Jacob Astor was born. And when we left off last, at 70... This man decided to start a new chapter in his life. Again, folks, the age of 70 starts a very new chapter. Let's take a listen. 
So the aging entrepreneur came up with a new way to make money and leave the memories behind. At the age of 70, Astor demolished his home on Broadway and put up the largest and most expensive hotel in the United States. When it opened, it was called the Park Hotel. Only after it had become extremely profitable, his demands were satisfied, and it had developed a reputation for luxury and elegance throughout the city, did he rename it the Astor House, in order to connect his name with a positive business image. And it had 300 rooms, it had 17 bathrooms, it had carpeted corridors, every room had a basin and a pitcher, it had free soap, and of course for all that luxury you would have to expect to pay a lot, and people did, it cost $2 a day. Despite that exorbitant price, the hotel was a sensation. Anyone who was anyone stayed there. Abraham Lincoln, Charles Dickens, the Prince of Wales, Edgar Allan Poe, and even Davy Crockett. Today, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel is still located in the center of Manhattan, and its reputation remains untarnished. The hotel's success made Astor even more of a public figure. With so many more people now aware of his tremendous wealth, he received more and more requests for charitable donations. But he managed to sidestep these matters. A minister one day came in to see John Jacob Astor and said to him, Oh, you have the means to do so much good, it must give you a great deal of pleasure. To which John Jacob replied, Oh, I don't know about that. Having the means doesn't mean that you have the disposition to do good. The situation outside of the hotel at the beginning of the 19th century was intensely distinguishable. New York is plagued with poverty. By the 1820s, uh, New York was famous around the world, actually, for a, a neighborhood known as the Five Points, which stood just just a little bit north and a little bit east of where City Hall now is. The Five Points was the, one of the worst slums in the Western world, this according to Charles Dickens, among others, who came and walked around it. Um, these are people who are flooding into New York from places like Ireland. They're desperately poor. They have, uh, they have no place to live. The city doesn't have an infrastructure to accommodate large numbers of people. On my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land or the foreign hordes defiling it. The density of the population in New York since Astor's arrival has increased dramatically. Originally, there were 30,000 residents, but now the metropolis has more than half a million. The situation is coming to a head. In 1837, there is an economic depression, which actually started in London, expanded to the European continent, and from 1837 through the early 1840s, targeted the U.S., which led many people in eastern states, where the depression was most prevalent, to pack their things and commence the famous overland treks to Oregon. Thousands go west as new federal states are established. The East stagnates. When Astor arrived, uh, what was the United States extended 
only along the eastern seaboard. It didn't even reach the Appalachian Mountains. By the time he died, California was a, on the threshold of becoming one of the states of the Union, and the United States encompassed much of, of what it now covers. That's a tremendous story, and it's, it's as much a, a, a remarkable story as the growth of New York City itself. And basically, New York in, in Astor's time, as he was really accumulating his big real estate fortune, was essentially wide open. It was a kind of Wild West atmosphere. Uh, and the only thing that really mattered, essentially, was a man's private word. The real estate prices in New York fall. Tenants move out or discontinue paying. Inflation gnaws at Astor's capital. He himself sees opportunity in this economic crisis, rather than any kind of defeat, and buys up more real estate, which after the crisis proves very profitable for him. Due to Astor's immense wealth, he can hold out a long time in order to weather out this economic depression. Thousands lose everything. Astor emerges victorious. Astor was very unemotional. He was very rational. He always knew when the time was ripe to engage in a line of business and when it was time to get out. Charles Dickens modeled Scrooge in his story, A Christmas Carol, after John Jacob Astor. I don't make many myself at Christmas. I can't afford to make a lot of idle people many. I hope to support the institutions we've just mentioned. They cost enough. People are badly off, they'd better go there. Many can't go there. Many would rather die. Well, if they'd rather die, they'd better do it. I'm sure that uh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was probably greatly unscrupulous. In fact, uh, a lot of people have felt that to be the case. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned, but like Scrooge, he also gave. And when we come back, we're going to learn about what happened to this vast fortune that John Jacob Astor put together. And as we learn in so many of these cases, so much of the great wealth that's accumulated by so many of these men and women end up going right back into the cities and into the places where they built those fortunes. And we're going to learn more about Astor and more about Astor's wealth after he died, after these messages from our local and our national sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. To listen to all of our This Days in History, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We have nearly a 100 of them up there now. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, and click the This Day in History icon. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now the final installment in this great story of John Jacob Astor. And we left off with this Scrooge-like reputation. And let's take the story from there. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned. But like Scrooge, he also gave. Here's Ivan Obolensky, a descendant of Astor. There's a tradition in certain families that when you and the Astors were amongst the forefront, uh, if you make a lot of money, you give thanks by doing uh, good things uh, to uh, put it back in, to say thank you. Astor donated money for a mission in Waldorf, his place of birth. The sum of 500 gold dollars is worth so much in Germany that the mission can be built and operated simply from the interest. But Astor would also like to erect a memorial in the United States for posterity. During this time, Astor commissioned Washington Irving, the renowned author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, to write a history of his fur trading colony in Astoria, Oregon. It was during their collaboration that the storyteller shared an idea about what he thought Astor should build next. A library. Donate a public library to the city of New York. Just like in London and Paris. It will bear your name. No, that's quite all right. It will increase your popularity. It will make you immortal. Astor dispatched an agent to Europe in order to purchase books valued at several hundred thousand dollars. The Astor Library on 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, now known as the New York Public Library, though it receives no public funding, is to be a memorial for him and American democracy. It is the largest and most visible legacy from John Jacob Astor, who never saw it open. Here's New York historian Brendan Gill. Well, $400,000 for a library at that time is, is an astounding sum. It was a very large sum, but people were more surprised, I think, by the fact that he left anything uh, to charity, that he became a philanthropist on his deathbed uh, was more startling than the sum itself. In 1848, Astor was 84 years old. His servants rocked him periodically each day so that his body had some exercise. Then on the morning of March 29, 1848, John Jacob Astor died at his home in New York City and was buried in Trinity Church Cemetery in Manhattan. But the death of John Jacob was not the end of the Astor dynasty. For almost 200 years, the Astors have influenced New York's high society. The great-grandson, John Jacob IV, is so famous that his death on the Titanic in 1912 made front-page headlines. Of all the wealthy travelers on the fateful ship, Astor was the richest man on board. The wealthy heir was returning from his honeymoon and became one of the 1,500 casualties. And, um... That's John Jacob Astor, the richest man on the ship. 
His little wifey there, Madeline, is my age and in a delicate condition. See how she's trying to hide it? Quite the scandal. <laughs> His pregnant wife, Alice, was rescued, and Vincent Astor was born. Then, in the middle of the 20th century, Vincent began putting the Astor money into a trust. His wife, Brooke Astor, who became known as the First Lady of Philanthropy, decided over her 105 years of life the importance of donating the entire fortune. In the year 2000, the then 98-year-old Brooke Astor was honored for her roughly $200 million Astor Foundation charity donation. My family used to say to me, Brooke, don't get beyond yourself. She thought uh, that all the Astor wealth was made in New York, so she should spend in New York, reinvest in New York. Try to always help them, everybody. And if they're absolutely nuts and stupid, well, stay away from them. <laughs> she used her giving as a catalyst for others to give. And second, she used her clout as a first lady of New York, an official first lady of New York, to generate others to give it. And that was one of the important points. I want to be known for being one of the first people to really go and see what to give to. Because I think you can give much more intelligently if you see what you're giving to. Astor Foundation projects benefit the young, the old, the sick, the healthy, and everyone in between. The Astors have created a unique legacy, a legacy not lost on the current generation of Astors. I don't think about it every day, but every now and again it, it dawns on you, think, gosh, it's nice to be connected with a family that has a name of such recognition, to be an Astor. The poor immigrant, John Jacob Astor, would be astounded to see how far his family and his fortune have come. And as always, great job on that, Greg. And if you've ever had the chance to get to the New York Public Library, and again, there is nothing public about it in terms of financing, it's just open to the public. And go to the reading room of the New York Public Library and do something crazy. Get a book and read. It's an amazing place. And there are people actually in there reading and writing. And they're from all over the world. And Bryant Park is magnificent. And the building, you just can't believe that one person did this. Yeah, Mr. Stingy, Mr. Tightwad. Well, he kept all that money. He knew how to make the money. And look what happens to the succeeding generations. And anybody who ever grew up around New York City knew the impact that Brooke Astor had on that city. And it was astounding. And she was always kneecapping people and pushing people into giving to just terrific causes. And again, imagine $200 million going towards in a very private effort the people who needed it the most. And this is the story of most American wealth in this country, folks. And you don't hear it anywhere else. And you're certainly never going to hear these stories on any college campus. You're just not, because it would really upset the myth and the narrative. We learned from Bernie Marcus that he had started with nothing. He got hired, hired and fired a few times, fired at the age of 50, and then founded on a napkin Home Depot. And when it was over, he had a, he had a fortune. And his Jewish tradition of tzedakah, which is the equivalent of Christian tithing, 
propelled him into charitable giving. And he had recalled his mom, even when they had no money growing up in Newark, New Jersey, always saying, we've got to give to people who are less off. By the way, we've forgotten this. We don't require the poor to give to. And tithing was required by all of us, all of us, rich and poor. And Bernie decided to build the Georgia Aquarium. And by the way, not the Marcus Aquarium, the Georgia Aquarium for the state that gave him all the opportunities to build that great company. And it was $250 million. And he built it himself. And poor kids could always go for free and see fish. And go figure. And again, you're not going to hear that story. Guy starts with nothing, comes from Russia as a Jew, gets discriminated against through much of his young life, builds an incredible enterprise, and then gives almost all of it away. And what part of that story don't you like, folks? And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. We tell the stories of great wealth. We love telling the stories of small businesses, of immigrants. Go to our July 4th story on all the different folks who've come from all over the world and taken that induction and that oath of loyalty to the U.S. Constitution and to this country, which, by the way, should be required of every citizen at the age of 18. Everyone should have to take that oath, and you should read it one day. It'll move you. And... That's what we do here. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of our storytelling. Our This Days in History will capture many of the great businessmen's rise to wealth. And then, as almost is always the case, you'll learn this in the Rockefeller story, uh, then that wealth gets redistributed, redistributed by the person himself who built that wealth back to the people, not to the government, so the government can decide how to redistribute that wealth. And it's a beautiful thing. And... Again, OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catch the stories, and most of those done by Greg Hengler, who is always uh, a silent type on this show. We try to get him to talk, and, and we prod him, and we, and we push him. And then every once in a while, he'll explode on the Hengler rants. And uh, so you can go to the Hengler rants and catch some of the old ones and some of the good ones. Uh, and once again, Our American Stories. Go to our This Day in History. I think we have 100 of them. Our 100 plus, and as always, are this days in history brought to us by our friends at Hillsdale College. And go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great storytelling. And right now, their C.S. Lewis series, a 10 part series on the great British theologian, uh, it'll get you. And he's the, he wrote the Chronicles of the Nar- Narnia and, of course, Mere Christianity, which may be one of the greatest theological works, plain simple and startling if you don't believe in god you'll have to rethink it and if you do believe in god maybe you'll know a little bit more why you do this is lee habib this is our american stories more after these messages